Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LSE. It is with enormous pleasure that I uh, welcome you to the, uh, the third election uh, in three years. <laughs> you know, we like to do things. Once we get on a roll, actually, we think we, we should just keep going. So, you know, you never know. We may be back here uh, before next year, uh, certainly next year. And possibly it may be on, should we just rerun that whole Brexit thing again? Can we just have a, a, you know, a rain check on that and, and perhaps just not do it? Or perhaps actually what we should do is just tell everybody we have done it. That's my strategy. We just tell everybody actually we've left. It's okay. It's okay. It's all fine. And then we just carry on. Um, but the problem about that is, of course, it has to remain a secret. So it's very difficult to campaign on the basis of let's pretend to do Brexit. But, you know, we've got some really good comms people here, uh, and I'm sure that they could work on that one uh, as a message. I'm sure they could do that. So it is, um, it is with enormous pleasure, but also with somewhat trepidation, I'm sure, that we all uh, go into tonight. Obviously not as much trepidation of those who wonder if they've got a job tomorrow morning. Uh, we do have very generous redundancy packages, however, if anybody's thinking about it. Um, <laughs> But in terms of, we know, um, we know the polls are all over the place and we know that we don't know uh, what any of them mean um, and therefore we have really no clear idea of, of where we're going to be uh, tomorrow. Uh, we may be in a similar place, we may be in a very different place and I think for some of us it's hard to work out, well actually what, what is good actually coming out of this election? What does a, a good result look like? And I know, like you, you've probably been doing that, well, it could be this and a different configuration here and a 6% over there means, a, you know, 20 seats over here. And really, we will, we will just have to wait and see as the night unfolds. But very fortunately, uh, you will have the companionship of an excellent range of speakers, panellists, chairs, uh, to help take you through the night, uh, or at least until about half past one, two o'clock, at which point we'll all probably just give up and, and oh my gosh, <laughs> So that's quite exciting. So the mood lighting was temporary, but obviously planned. Um, we're just testing, you know, just like British Airways, just if somebody pulls the plug, you know, will we all go down? But, but fortunately, the reconnection happened with that quite seamlessly. Unless, of course, we've lost the podcast and, and, and the tens of millions of people who are homing in have now lost us completely. Um, but hopefully we're all happily reconnected. So just for social media, um, just to do some social media ha um, housekeeping. So we're obviously here on hashtag LSEGE2017. Obviously, we just cross out the number at the end of each year and use the same hashtag. So remember to use the 17 rather than the 15, unless you're into contemporary history, in, in which case you could use the other. Um, obviously, following on LSE uh, blog, LSE public events. Um, and as I say, we will have to see exactly uh, how we fall out. For us as a university, as a university sector, um, we've got an awful lot at stake in this election. Um, but the most we have at stake is actually what happens in relation to Brexit, what happens in relation to our ability to recruit the brightest and the best from around the world. Um, LSE, we are hugely international. We are incredibly proud of that. We are open. We are diverse. We are very proud to be citizens of nowhere. And we want to maintain our ability to do that. So what comes out of this election for us is very much really can we keep maintaining our international students flowing through our EU students and our EU staff and international staff 
flowing through the LSE to make the LSE the very distinctive and unique and very special place that it is. That is what we have been lobbying very hard for. That is what we will continue to lobby for uh, no matter which party comes through or which combination of parties uh, comes through uh, the course of this evening and into, and into tomorrow. There's obviously a lot more at stake for every single one of us, no matter whether we're UK residents or not. Um, what will happen in this election will have implications that will reverberate, well, if it's a hung parliament for a few months, uh, but if it's a more decisive majority, will reverberate uh, for generations. So this is, there's more at stake, I think, in this election than, well, there was a lot at stake in the Brexit referendum. I think people realise there's possibly more at stake uh, now than there has been in many other elections previously. And we can see that as the polls come through that we've got a reconsolidation around uh, major parties in a way that we haven't seen for the last sort of 20 or 30 years. Um, and those will be issues which um, the panels will be discussing as we go through the evening. So you've got panels coming through on um, what to expect. Excellent. Over to my panel on the left there for... Uh, the not, uh, not easy task of predictions. Panels on British politics, panels on Brexit itself, panels on the economy and welfare, uh, and pa panels finally moving through into the wee hours of the morning on defence and foreign policy, all of which are obviously critical issues. It's very hard to understate, as I say, what is at stake um, as we go forward. My huge um, thanks to all of those who have worked very hard to organise tonight uh, in our comms team, but also our academics in the de government department, the European Institute. Um, there have been huge amounts of work, as you can imagine, has gone on to this event. So I'm well, thanking them in advance because I think we'll probably be all too tired and shattered by the time we get through to Hoppus One uh, to do that. And I just hope that you enjoy being with us as we go through uh, what is likely to be quite a momentous night. Thank you. So I now hand over to our first panel, um, and Tony Travis, who's going to take us through that. Bear with us. Actually, why didn't I say... Patrick, can you go and explain? Well, I, I will say a few words while Patrick sorts everything out. Right. <laughs> Uh, I'd just like to reiterate Julia's um, welcome to you all, um, LSE colleagues, alumni, journalists from around the world, visitors, people who fit in none of these categories, others besides. Welcome. Um, as Julia says, this really is the third time out of three uh, years. Uh, this is an unusual number of uh, national uh, plebiscites of this kind. The last time this happened is in 1974-5, and before that back in the early part of the 20th century. So it is an unusual period in British politics by any standards. Uh, what we're going to do this evening is start with some ruminations on the state of the political parties as they've gone through the general election campaign, the one that nobody expected, not even the Prime Minister, before it was announced. Uh, so uh, there's a lot unexpected, it says what to expect, but I wouldn't hold your breath about that, <laughs> uh, even though we'll get some expertise, obviously. And as Julia said, there are panels through the night not only looking at the condition of British politics, but also how Britain will approach uh, leaving the European Union in the light of what we will then, by then know, by the way, about the likely result, 
and also about the future of domestic policy, the economy and welfare, and then uh, defence and foreign policy. It's an opportunity here at the LSE, the London School of Economics and Political Science, to see political science un, uh, coming before us in real terms. All of that uh, extra data, all of those new political changes to study in the months and years ahead. I'd just like to say there's a number of colleagues here from other parts of the University of London who are very welcome and who are joining in tonight. Actually, I can move here now. Actually, I'll stay here for the photographs. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they never. All right, so thank you to our colleagues from other parts of the university for joining us tonight. Several other colleges represented. I then have a few uh, other things to announce which are by way of uh, air traffic or, you know, on the aeroplane sort of things. Uh, first, it says say hello to the audience. Oh, I'm saying hello to the online audience, so welcome online audience. Do ask questions. Uh, second, if you want to submit questions to the panels as they go along this evening, please pass them on paper to the stewards, the state-of-the-art technology, in the red T-shirts, or via Twitter using the hashtag uh, LSEGE2017. Remind them, that's you, uh, that you won't be taking questions if they put up their hands. So it's got to be done either on pieces of paper or by Twitter. The other thing to say is, please, t if you leave, as you will leave from time to time, take your belongings with you for all sorts of reasons and allow other people to come in and out. just makes it easier for it all to uh, function during the evening. So that's it. Uh, what I'm going to do now is to introduce my two excellent panellists who are going to speak for a while, then I will return here at the end, say a few more things to add what they have said, uh, and then we will stop at 9.58. The screen will turn onto an exit poll, and then we'll find out what the exit poll says, which may or may not be the result. Right. <laughs> the two panellists to start us off this evening on what to expect are... Pat Dunleavy, who's a colleague of mine here at the London School of Economics, and uh, Jennifer Hudson, who is from University College London. Patrick, you're going to speak first. Yeah. Okay, so this is what's been happening over the course of the campaign. You can see the uh, Brexit line, and at that point the two parties weren't all that far apart. And then as soon as Brexit was... Uh, one by leave, we see uh, a big uh, gap opening up between the Conservatives and Labour, which runs all the way through from um, there into 2017, up to the point when Theresa May decides to call the general election, which is the, the line <coughs> over on the right. And then you see a tremendous, <coughs> really tremendous change in uh, Polling. So Labour was 20 points behind when the election was called. Uh, looked as if it was going to be an absolute Thatcher-level <coughs> landslide. And then subsequently since then, Labour has produced a sort of classic social democratic manifesto. Mrs May's campaign has not gone terribly well. And we've seen a bit of a convergence of the polls. But we haven't got any polls yet which show Labour ahead of the Conservatives. And most of the polls as you can see from the fuzziness, have tended to show a reasonable Conservative lead. So the problem really for the Prime Minister proved to be the campaign. You can't eat chips and drink coffee at the same time. <laughs> it 
This is almost the only time when she was actually meeting ordinary people. The rest of the time, she was talking to empty industrial parks, and at the bottom, a very great affinity for warehouses. So, in case she's got any doubts about the industrial strategy, we're a services economy, all we've got is left is warehouses. Meanwhile, Jeremy Corbyn ran a, a much more effective than expected campaign and particularly did some high-risk things that British politicians haven't done for quite a long time, like go for very open meetings where lots of people can show up and go for some very big meetings and also try to play football, which he didn't. <laughs> okay, so where does that leave us now? Here's a, a, a graph that looks a bit complicated but actually is very uh, clear so the bluer it gets the better it is for the conservatives down at the uh, bottom right and the redder it gets the better it is for Labour so we're measuring Labour support going up the axis here and conservative support going that way across the thing now if we were in an era of two party politics like the 1950s and 60s this is where we'd be up this line here so maybe 5 or 6% of the vote would be going to other parties, but it would be basically just a straight up and down here kind of battle. Are we there yet? A lot of people have said we are, but the evidence is not so very clear. Back in 2015, the general election result was down here, so it's a long way away from the two-party line. In the May 2017 local elections also a very long way away from the uh, two-party line. And the Conservative vote was 38%, Labour got 27 very low score. Liberal Democrats got 18% in the local council elections. Now, what's happened in the general election campaign? Well, we won't go through all the polls, but let's just go to the 10 polls that we have from yesterday. And here they are, the black dots. And you can see that they are spread out in a kind of uh, band. So they're not all converging on one thing. We've got a group of polls that are predicting something close to a hung parliament or a continuation of the very narrow conservative majority now. We've got a group of polls that are predicting something like a conservative landslide with a 100 seat majority. And we've got polls in the middle that are uh, uh, hedging their bets. <laughs> Uh, but that's basically where we think it's going to be. I think most political scientists would think it's going to be around 43-44% for the Conservatives, about 36% for Labour. The Liberal Democrats will maybe get uh, better support. Uh, they've got to hope that they're going to get better support than 7.7%. And UKIP is uh, currently polling around 4 or 5. So what's basically happened is that UKIP has committed suicide since Brexit. <laughs> and of course, before that, the Liberal Democrats committed suicide in a kind of slow motion way from 2010 to 2015. And that's why we've got a move away from these 2015 results down here and back towards some sort of two party uh, dynamic. And that two party dynamic is also shown by the way that the polls are aligned. So I hope that gets you into a kind of overall picture of the landscape. It's going to be quite difficult for Labour to push into the hung parliament terrain unless somehow the Conservative vote is a lot less than we think it's going to be.
very much for, for being here and to uh, Tony and Patrick for inviting me and uh, for all of you for coming. So um, in my five minutes, I just wanted to talk a little bit again about the campaign uh, and say how I think we got, well, where we weren't supposed to be and then what's going to happen um, probably after 10 o'clock. So the first point is so much for 2020. If you're a sophologist, uh, we probably thought we were going to get away with another general election until 2020. Um, and I was sitting at home working on a very lovely, I think it was Tuesday morning when, when the BBC started flashing uh, general election and just kind of thought, oh shit. Uh, this is going to be a lot of work but it's fun now, we're here and we've, we've got a lot of good stuff to go I think there was at least a dozen times Theresa May denied that she would call a general election and then when she did she said this election is about securing the strong and stable, we've heard that uh, leadership our country needs to get us through Brexit and beyond and then I think at some point we were all Brenda from Bristol when she said, you're joking, not another one. So we're here, uh, and we'll find out very, very shortly what's in store for us. Um, this was rumored to be the Brexit election. That's what Theresa May said. She made it very, very clear that this was about getting a large majority. As Patrick said, she was 21 percentage points ahead at the time the general election was called. And so this was her chance to get a large majority to see through the Brexit negotiations. Uh, back in May, we asked British respondents uh, a few questions about how they felt about the campaign, about party leaders, and in particularly about Brexit. And we asked them two questions, essentially. We said, tell us of these emotions and which ones you feel in terms of thinking about the upcoming negotiations and also the possibility that we might leave without uh, an agreement. And as you can see from this particular spider plot, there's not, of a, lot, there's not a lot of emotional response here. Um, at best, people are depressed. Okay? That may, <laughs> makes sense. Or they're angry. But there's not a lot of positivity around the, Brexit, uh, the upcoming Brexit negotiations. Now, the reason why we care about emotions is because they're often a pathway or a motivation for people to get involved in politics or to become involved in political processes. So, in my mind, it was going to be really difficult for May to make this about Brexit when it seemed like the electorate had moved on from Brexit. Now, we know of the people who did vote Remain, um, about uh, a good proportion of them have moved on to accept the result and just say, let's get on with it. So there's only about 20 to 30% of the British electorate who say, I really want to have referendum number two and have a do-over. But the rest of us, um, kind of, well, the, the, the large proportion of British voters have said, right, um, we, we're going to leave the European Union, let's get on with it. So... This is a campaign that mattered then, but not for the reason that Theresa May set out for it. Um, Patrick showed you this, this graph, and it's really important to illustrate the point about how much narrowing has taken place between the two main parties, between Labour and Conservative. And I think there are a couple of key issues uh, or key points around the election that we want to think about here. For May and the Conservatives, perhaps the, the central point was that social, uh, was the U-turn uh, on social care, the dementia tax. Um, and some people argued that this was an opportunity for her to show tough leadership, that decisions need to be taken uh, if we want to provide social care for an aging population, and it backfired very, very significantly. That grey vote really got uncomfortable uh, around that issue. I think in terms of the campaign, there was a real uh, miscalculation about how much the public could hear about strong and stable leadership. Um, 
You know, for us as, as probably political junkies or cephalogists, we were probably bored of it after the first couple of days. Um, but I think it really became a very trite, replayed kind of message. And as the campaign started to crumble, it became a real sign of weakness for May and the Conservatives. And if you think about the timeline of the campaign, it really went from having strong and stable on the back of all those posters to not having it at all. And increasingly, May was reduced from the posters, and it was just about the Conservative Party. I think fox hunting, I think not turning up for the debates were also key issues for her that really went against her view of herself and the view of her as a leader as one that's competent and credible and tough. For Corbyn and Labour, um, we started this particular election with a lot of infighting in the Labour Party, uh, challenges to Corbyn's leadership, and a lot of dissension within the party. So they weren't starting off from a very good place. But Corbyn's in particular past record and some of his allies, um, his position on national security, nuclear weapons, shoot to kill, these were all things that continued to dog him during the campaign. And then, of course, this happens in the backdrop of the Manchester and the uh, the London uh, terrorist attacks. And so those undoubtedly shifted in the last couple of weeks the focus and the attention on very domestic issues about keeping the UK safe. Now, we looked again at how people felt about the leaders. And again, they're not that excited. They're not that emotionally engaged about the leaders. And interestingly, for as bad as Corbyn was viewed to be in the media and more broadly, his emotional responses from the British public are not that different from Theresa May. Yes, people are slightly more uneasy about him, and they're a little bit more confident and hopeful about Theresa May. But we don't see the two different types of profiles that we might have been led to expect. Now, just to show a little bit of the movement um, in terms of where May and Corbyn uh, are. The question about who's the best leader for Britain, at the start of the campaign, 44% of the British public said it was Theresa May. By the time we got to a couple days ago, only a third, just over a third of the British public said so. And you can see the movement there in the positive direction for Corbyn. So in some cases, this might be, we might think about this particular campaign as May still positively viewed, but has been significantly weakened. Corbyn is still quite weak, but he has been strengthened because he's outperformed expectations uh, in this campaign. So where I'll leave it is, the question is this, has May lost even if she wins tonight? Um, She had a lot to lose, and I think she did. It was probably a really good thing. They had 21 points to work with um, at the beginning (laughs) of the election because we can see from those graphs how the Labour campaign and Jeremy Corbyn made some inroads. This was not a good campaign by any stretch of the imagination. I think what we'll see tonight, however, is that the fundamentals matter. And what I mean by that is the economy, security, immigration. Those key things that UK voters have been preoccupied with for many, many elections. And I think it's those fundamentals that will carry both May uh, and the Tories to a win. I think May is quite damaged on her own view of competence. That's what she came into this with. She was a very competent leader, and I think she's been quite damaged here, which leads her open to uh, a future leadership challenge. And then just to leave it, I think Corbyn's outperformed expectations. So the case to remove him, perhaps going forward, is much, much weaker. Thank you. Very good.
I only have to rush us on because uh, soon the screen will change and we will run into watching the announcement of the exit poll. I just wanted, I know many of the people in their own room know this, but you know, for those of you from overseas, perhaps journalists from overseas, this is how the British count elections. This will be happening soon. It's not very easy to attack this uh, with a cyber attack, I can tell you. Uh, <laughs> do it. And indeed, even the voting process will be quite hard. Um, the exit poll. Broadcast uh, at 10pm, it should say, 2200, so very soon. Main channels, BBC, ITV and Sky, are sponsoring it. It's undertaken by two major polling companies. It's a massive exercise. I'll show you how that's done as well in a moment. Another lovely photograph. It's been relatively accurate in recent years, within 20 seats for the major parties. And this, part, this chart, which is just about, well, it was just about readable until it disappeared. All right. <laughs> That's my own fault, isn't it? Yes, they did get this. Anyway, so last time they were within 15%, 15 seats, 15 seats of the Conservative final total, and slightly overstated Labour the SNP, the Liberal Democrats and others. This doesn't mean the poll tonight will be right, but it was reasonably accurate last time and gave a shock moment uh, when it was announced, for those of you who were here at the time. That's how the exit poll is done. This is asking people as they leave real uh, polling stations effectively to vote again. So again, it's the high-tech nature of the British voting system that you can see tonight. To be fair, the actual production of the exit poll is a highly sophisticated, uh, uh, technically and statistically informed exercise. These are the predicted early declarations. This is a bit of a test for the eyes, but starting with a number of safe seats. The three Sunderland seats, Sunderland prides itself in the northeast on uh, getting these results out fast, safe seats, and then a number of other safe seats, mostly Labour, some Conservative, and then one or two more marginal ones, Tooting, about 115, and then Wrexham uh, a little bit after that. And all I'd say is, as the television's come on behind me, goodness, uh, briefly, uh, the um, seats, the first ones are safe seats, and in the, all four of the first five, UKIP were doing quite well last time. So the thing to watch, for those of you who want to think about it when it happens, assuming the turnout doesn't change radically, just look at the size of the Labour or Conservative vote. If the Labour vote goes down a lot, it's bad for Labour. If it goes up a lot for the Conservatives, it would be good for them. Aiming off for the fact, as many people in the room will know, if there are substantial regional effects, that may affect even that kind of straightforward analysis. There are a number of blogs advertised here. Please visit them regularly and, of course, continue to use Twitter during the night. Now, we are arriving at the point where we are three or four minutes to ten. What's going to happen is the screen will come on again, he said with enormous optimism. <laughs> that will carry the BBC, and we will then hear as the programme turns... Uh, they start their programme at 10 o'clock. So we will then hear the first few minutes, which, in which we hope we will hear the exit poll, and then we'll fade down the screen again, and I will then uh, turn back to Patrick and Jennifer to give some early responses. When that's over, another panel will start here about the future of British politics, and then the journalists will be opportunities to talk to LSE folk and others outside. So can we have the sound up now, please?
Just keep, keep quiet for a moment. We'll stop this in a moment and we'll come back to the panel. Okay, well, let it never be said that election night at the LSE, uh, it's not because of the LSE, I can say, but brings, doesn't bring un- unexpected results. Now, as David Dimbleby said, it is, of course, just a, an exit poll, and it is possible the exit poll on this occasion will be less predictive than in the past. We must accept that is a possibility. But I, what I want to do is turn to Jennifer and to uh, Patrick, Uh, to get their immediate responses, assuming this or something like this is what's going to happen. Jennifer, you were talking, and I cut you off, I'm sorry about that, about Theresa May's campaign, about Jeremy Corbyn's. What's your immediate feeling when you see these numbers? Oh, wowee. Oh, wowee, yes, okay. So, yeah, my immediate thought is turnout and what what is going on in terms of turnout. So we heard lots of stuff about how there was going to be an energised youth vote and that was going to really propel Jeremy Corbyn. Um, You know, I I would like to see what those numbers are going to look like. I wonder to what extent that's going to split by age. Um, We know that there was a a great deal of young people turning out, or at least suggesting that they were going to uh, support Corbyn. In terms of parties, um, it's a bit of a shock, I think, for the SNP. So on 56 seats from 2015, and they're now projected at 34. So that, to me, at least suggests that that Labour has done better in Scotland um, than, than anticipated. Um, slightly more positive for the Liberal Democrats than, yeah. than, than has been yeah. projected. Okay, very good. And Patrick, what's your first take on this? Okay, well, the projection is the Conservatives have 314 seats. They can also rely on the votes of Unionist MPs from Northern Ireland, which would be another eight. That would get them to 322. And given that five Sinn Féin or six or seven maybe Sinn Féin people won't show up, that means that they will probably continue in power, I'd have thought. 
And what does this say for Theresa May's leadership of such a government? Well, I think she's not going to be... <laughs> she's not going to be sacking Philip Hammond in a hurry. <laughs> but, I mean, more seriously... Hang on, order, order. Um, more seriously, as uh, Laura Koonsberg was making the point, this was a massive gamble against what... Uh, as Jennifer had said, had been said before, she wasn't going to hold an election until 2020, changed her mind. It really put her right at the front of the campaign all the way through it. So if the exit poll is correct, uh, this is very well below what might have been thought to be even a tolerable result, to put it at it, I, I like understatement, uh, <laughs> by any state. So, I mean, what, what do you think will happen in the immediate aftermath of this to the Conservative leadership? I'm pretty sure that uh, Theresa May will go back to Downing Street, unfortunately, even if... Uh, <laughs> sorry, did I say that? Uh, even, if, um, even if she has a problem, she, they, it looks as if the Conservatives are clearly the largest party. It looks as if there would be almost no coalitional possibilities against, against them. That's the real point needs to, to be thought about. And that really means that, uh, you know, we're, we're quite similar to 2010 when only one party could form a government. Okay. I think what this really means is that um, it's a bit of a defeat for the Conservative press, uh, which I don't know if many of you saw it this morning was in kind of, uh, and yesterday was in sort of overdrive. Uh, and it sort of suggests that the momentum of British electioneering has moved a lot onto social media. There was some early research showing that Labour was winning the social media campaign by a, a head, and it looks as if that's what's really happened here. And given that a certain amount was made earlier on about the referendum result last year, what it's hard to read into this result if it's anything like uh, the real result, a Brexit overlay where rim, uh, leave voters turned out in large numbers to reinforce the choice last year. You couldn't look at these numbers and say that, could you? No, we haven't got a vote share. That's what we really need to see, is uh, an estimated national share of the votes. But it looks as if Labour has come up very appreciably compared with Ed Miliband's score in 2015. It looks as if perhaps they've managed to attract people either, as Jennifer said, to turn out or to pull, in, pull back some UKIP supporters. And it may be that tactical voting has had some role to play. Certainly, if the Liberals, uh, Liberal Democrats are getting 14, that will probably largely be down to effective tactical voting. We asked for questions, and Sebastian Rodriguez... Put your hand up, Sebastian. Right, asked, how many seats will May need to call it a success? <laughs> Now, again, we must get ahead of ourselves here, but well done. It's a perceptive question. Um, clearly, this won't be seen as uh, a success, but the difficulty surely will be, given that Mrs May, even to say, say in the end it came out as a small Conservative majority, as she made the point that the purpose of holding the election was to have a strong bargaining position when she went into the Brexit negotiations. How do you imagine the Brexit panel can get ready for this one? How, does, how do you imagine this will be read in the other capitals of Europe? Jennifer. Yeah. Um, I, as an American who's lived here for quite a long time, some of this says to me that 
the British people don't like foregone conclusions and they don't like to be told, um, they don't like the idea that something is. And, and I think that this was actually a contest that the people wanted to have a say in, similar to, similar to Brexit. Um, but they didn't want to think that this was just going to be a truce and made dictating the terms and coming away with a, a really large majority. Now, how that maps on to Brexit, um, I think it's going to be very difficult for other countries to, to look at the UK and say that there's anything like Theresa May planned. Um, it, it takes us back to that 5248 where we were after the referendum, that this is actually a very split country when it comes to the Europe question. Yeah. And now, um, Graham Pearman, Pearman on Twitter, maybe in the room, maybe at home. Twitter. You're here. Hello. Welcome. Um, where will the UKIP votes go? So, Patrick, where do you think the UKIP votes have gone? I think quite a lot of the UKIP vote has gone towards the Conservatives. The polls suggested at least 50, maybe 60%. Um, but then some Conservatives have gone towards uh, either the Liberal Democrats or Labour. I think uh, we perhaps should recognise that there may be a continuity with the Brexit referendum, which is that the British voters have decided to do the transgressive thing. Uh, the transgressive thing in 2016 was vote to leave, the transgressive thing in 2017 was give the government a kick up the pants. Michael, I think it is Mozinski, if I pronounced that correctly. Are you in the room? He's coming in online. You're online. Well, welcome. His question was, this is a good one. They're all good ones, actually. Does the campaign really matter? And he added, as May will win anyway or something but actually it looks as if the, I mean it's a good question the campaign apparently did matter we normally say campaign I've always thought campaigns don't matter the campaign appears Jennifer's slide suggested it to have mattered not just the campaign the manifestos mattered the manifesto. so Theresa May's manifesto was a bit of a disaster uh, Tony and I were doing a briefing for uh, the foreign press uh, the morning after that uh, and we said the dementia tax, the uh, getting rid of the triple lock and getting rid of the winter fuel payments, well, I said they would never be implemented. And uh, the right. foreign press didn't believe, didn't believe me. Uh, and uh, yet within a little while, within a day, Theresa May had repented of that. So I think that manifesto thing will be the real problem that's going to haunt her for the next uh, foreseeable period. Meanwhile, the Labour manifesto was a fairly coherent, fairly moderate, but very social democratic, anti-austerity, pro-public services manifesto, uh, which obviously did have a huge impact, partly because it was released twice, once <laughs> by accident and then once deliberately. But, so it's not just the campaigns, but the actual manifesto. Response to austerity, do you think, in this? Definitely. I think the Conservatives have maintained more or less zero public sector pay increases for far too long and that's probably part of the problem they've had. Okay, now we're going to pause in two more minutes, uh, two minutes uh, and then I put them on notice, there's a panel on British politics which when we put the programme together looks as a fairly tame affair uh, I can see that now it's going to have a lot to say so thank goodness uh, they're all here tonight One final question my dear. Um, Jennifer, Patrick, hello. Um, one, one final question before, before we stop. And that is, um, Patrick used the word transgressive. And it, you could say, could you not, that the 
Brexit vote last year, the EU referendum result, was a definite reaction against the political establishment. Question, do you think this is a second vote against the, the establishment? And in that sense, this is a response to, in some ways, the same sort of underlying anger or whatever it is in parts of the British electorate that simply has effectively used the general election, if the result turns, to be, turns out to be as the exit polls suggest, we must still bear that in mind. But if it is, it's the same sort of response to an underlying feeling of dissatisfaction or disempowerment. I think a lot of people have thought that uh, populism is something that can only work in favour of the right. And actually what Labour did was pick a slogan, which is a very uh, populist slogan. It goes, for the many, not the few. Uh, that doesn't sound terribly great to those of us who read elite theorists in the, in the old days. Uh, but, you know, if you repeat that message long enough, and if it then gets sort of illustrative examples like police cutbacks that seem to explain, you know, uh, why terrorism has happened, um, those sorts of things, I think, can, can jive. So I think we've seen left-wing populism in Spain, in Greece... Perhaps we've seen uh, a bit of that in the current climate as well. Jenny? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Tony. Um, there was lots of argument during the campaign that Jeremy Corbyn has a little bit of the, the Bernies about him from the U.S., so that there's a little bit of that, that, that uh, kind of left-wing anti-establishment, that he's somebody who can bring people along and that people can relate to him. And there was a very uh, interesting picture in the paper just a couple of days ago, and it was him with two supporters um, and he was almost cheek-to-cheek with his supporters. And I just thought you would never see May that close with any of her supporters. <laughs> but it said something about somebody who seemed to be very principled, whether you agree with him or not, and very relatable. And I think in terms of what he's offering, that's not the standard package that has appealed. And in the way that Mrs May's leadership is challenged one way, for those in the Labour Party who are hoping this would be the election to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, is he now invincible? Is he, is he now, are, they, are they now left with him for f- however long this... Well, actually, on this result, we could indeed be back again in another year if it's like this. But assuming it's four or five more years, do you think Labour is now going to, be, I mean, to have to accept Jeremy Corbyn as leader? I think it's going to be enormously difficult for the night, but I will Hang defer on. to Tim Bale. I think the next panel should yeah, tackle next this panel one. should do that. OK, that's a... Right, thank you, Patrick. So, the next panel... <laughs> Panel, chaired by Kate Jenkins, and our speakers are Tim Bale, Matthew Goodwin, Cordelia Hay. Best of luck. Thank you. See you later. <laughs>